Zachary Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had the Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels, is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harvard and the 2015 Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. So I've already dropped the not fiction part on you in Excursus B, uh, which you can find right before this episode. Uh, One little note before we jump into the chapter of Clinch for this week, and that is if you're hearing this in the day or two after I post it uh, and you would like to enter for a chance to win my new book, Playing Saint All Souls Day, and some Gut Check Blend coffee, uh, go ahead and head over to www.zacharybartles.com slash giveaway. And there's going to be a number of winners for that. So uh, maybe just take a second, and uh, it's good coffee, and uh, I think it's a good book. And without further ado, let's jump into Clinch, a novel, chapter 17. Trent had been ducking Judith's calls for almost 24 hours now, although he had been texting her updates, or non-updates as it were, about his dad's condition. For whatever reason, he just felt he lacked the emotional energy a conversation with Judith entailed. Now that Dad was awake, though, Trent owed her a call. How is he? She answered. Hello to you, too. Sorry. Hi. How is he? Trent chuckled. Awake? He doesn't feel great, but he's alert and talking and like his old self. Like his old, old self. He even said both he and I deserve to take a little time to unwind. Are you going to stay the night again? I'm not sure. Chief Barton is heading back in about half an hour, so if I'm riding with him, I have to decide soon. I'm leaning towards sleeping in my own bed. Good, Judith said. We've got work to do. This, this right here is why Trent had been ducking her calls. This would not be a fun conversation. No, Judith, he said. That stuff's over. I think I'm just going to give the diary to Chief Barton. Barton? You must be joking. Think about it, Judith. Wouldn't it feel good to have that off our minds? No more secrets. Get it out in the open. You pinky swore. She said, you told me this was our secret, that you saved it for me. I was trying to distract you from your superhero fixation. Obviously, it didn't work. You were trying to manipulate me? Judith's voice hung heavy with a sense of betrayal. For your own good. Stephen Branding's dead. Did you know that? She was quiet for a minute, then asked, how? Heart attack. Apparently, you can only go 110% squeaking by on power naps and protein bars for so long before your ticker just gives up. He probably had a congenital defect, Judith said. What? What does this heart have to do with his congenital genius? Like, inherited? I'm not basing any life decisions on this until I have an autopsy report. 
A flash of frustration burst up through the layers of worry and fatigue, exploding like fireworks into, Judith, get in touch with reality. You don't want people to think you're crazy? Stop acting crazy. There's no such thing as superheroes. That's only in comic books and cartoons and movies. You can't be one because you don't live in a comic book or a cartoon or a movie, okay? You live in the real world, or at least you could if you chose to. In fact, this is me inviting you to come be with us. Silence from the other end of the phone call. The debris from the fireworks begin to rain down in the form of guilt. Look, I'm, I'm sorry, Judith. I'm really tired and my nerves are shot. I just, I just had a long talk with Ed Piper and he put everything in a perspective. He was like, you don't have to be a superhero to follow Jesus faithfully. All that insane faith stuff is just a distraction from working hard every day, being a good student or a police chief or whatever, volunteering at the soup kitchen, you know, following Jesus while doing ordinary stuff. Judith's answer came loud and crisp, but somehow miles distant. What if someone had said that to the apostles, or Rachel Saint, or Sojourner Truth? Trenton had no answer. He wished Ed was still there so he could relay the question to him. Look, Judith, I almost lost my dad today. The doctor said his brain was bleeding. I can't lose you, too. There's more than one way to lose someone, she said. I have to go. Okay, bye, Trenton said, but she'd already hung up. Just then, the door opened and Chief Barton came out, stuffing his notepad into his pocket. If you're coming with me, you better say goodbye to your dad. I've got to be back in Clinch Rock in an hour. He winked at Trent. We'll light up the sirens. Trent's dad worried over him a bit and reiterated several times, in by curfew and no visitors. As he and Chief Barton headed out into the parking lot, Trent was completely lost in thought. Indecision about what to do with the diary, anxiety over staying by himself in one of the few remaining buildings to fit the profile, guilt over not having warned Zoe that her house was on the same exclusive list, regret for his harsh words to Judith. Then something brought him back to the moment. This place. What had it been? It was important. He stopped a moment and let Barton power walk on toward his police cruiser, illegally parked in the fire lane. Trenton felt a rush as his eyes landed on it, the old red truck with the busted headlight cover. He filled his lungs, ready to call out to Barton, but then he locked eyes with Officer Terrell sitting behind the wheel of the idling truck, and the breath seemed to disappear. You coming, kid? Barton shouted over his shoulder. Yeah, Trenton answered, jogging to catch up. The hour drive home seemed to take five times that, as Trent's mind played ping-pong with the question of whether he could trust Barton with the diary, the old banknotes, with Terrell's connection to the old red truck, and his certainty that Cash had been one of the men who climbed into the same truck earlier that week. Obviously, he couldn't tell Dad while he was recovering from a head injury, just as he was finally about to get some real rest. It was Barton or nothing. Or should he maybe tell Jesse Finn... The ping-pong match was a draw, tied at about 5,000 up, when Barton pulled into the driveway of the parsonage. All right, kid, he said. I'll be checking in on you, so remember what your old man said. No parties, no staying out late. Got it? Trenton nodded weakly and stepped out of the car. Thanks for the ride, he said. His stomach growled loudly. There was a tombstone pizza in the freezer with his name on it. By the time he reached the front door, Barton had peeled away, sirens blaring once again. 
Trent paused at the storm door, where a note had been taped. The stationery read, From the desk of Zoe Green. It smelled like her perfume, and the very scent reawakened something in Trenton. A familiar braiding of excitement, anxiety, and something more primal. He'd thrown away his last chance with the most beautiful, graceful, sophisticated woman he'd ever had a prayer of dating. And for what? So that Judith could just keep right on following Stephen Branding off the cliff? Pulling the handwritten note off the window, he read the words of her beautiful cursive penmanship. Trenton, I was so very sorry to hear what happened to your father. I did not want to bother you while you had so much on your mind, but please know that I've been praying for you. I'm sorry about how we left things. If you can forgive me, call me when you get a chance. Love, Zoe. He read it through again, and then read the Love, Zoe part about ten more times. Glancing up at the door, he saw his reflection in the glass and realized his ear-to-ear grin was threatening to permanently split his face. He may have blown it with the girl more than once, but this time would be different. Trent dug the phone from his pocket as he unlocked the front door and was about to hit the button to dial Zoe when the handset clattered to the ground. The Marsh home had been ransacked. Every drawer seemed to have been emptied onto the floor. Every book, finally shelved after months in boxes, had been fanned and dumped in a pile. Picking up his phone, Trent considered calling 911, bringing Barton back to the house. Or better, Jesse Finn. Or worse, Officer Cash. No, that wouldn't do. There was a better-than-average chance that Tango and Cash had taken part in the ransacking. Hello? He called out, taking a few tentative steps into the house. Everything was out of place, but nothing seemed to be missing. His dad's 60-inch flat screen was still mounted on the wall. It was clear that whoever did this was looking for something. And yet, it was different from all the other break-ins. No holes in the walls, no floorboards pried up. The diary. Any reservations gone, Trent flew out the side door to the garage and down the basement stairs to his bedroom. He breathed a sigh of deep relief. Everything seemed to be intact down here. His dresser drawers were in place, and the long pine board was snugged up to the opening of the secret room, blocking the view of Jeremiah Walcott's old desk. Slipping into the hidden chamber, Trenton pulled out the bottom drawer and reached back into the void, where he'd balanced the diary on a small ledge at the very back. His hand closed around the antique book, and the rest of the tension left his body, but only for a moment. There were so many questions. Was the chaos above his head the work of the same men who had broken in so many other places? If so, why had they changed their methods? Did they know about the diary? And most troubling, if they did know, how? Besides Judith, the only person he'd told was Zoe. Then again, if Zoe was behind this, she certainly would have included his bedroom in the search, right? So it couldn't be her. Trent had known this was likely coming as the list of potential targets dwindled. He'd even told Barton. Oh, yeah. He'd told Barton. Whatever the case, it made sense to call Zoe. If she was involved, he could feel her out. If not, he could warn her. Either way, he felt a pressing, growing need to hear her voice. Her face and number still graced his phone's display. It rang only once before she answered, her voice tender and compassionate. How are you, Trenton? I'm okay, considering. My dad woke up this morning. They want to keep him a couple days, but... It looks like he should make a full recovery before too long. You must be so glad that he's leaving police work, she said. I can't imagine how worried you would be if he went back out there. Yeah, I don't know. Trent was a little confused by his own lack of apprehension regarding his father's work in law enforcement. 
Lately, it was his other occupation that had him in knots. So, you're all alone? Zoe asked. Yeah, Trent looked around. I hope so. Maybe I should come over, she said, coquettishly. Keep you company. Trenton thought of the disaster upstairs. It would take hours to clean up. And, of course, his dad had forbidden visitors while he was laid up. Why don't we get together in the morning, Trent said. I'm pretty tired. I just want to veg for a while and then hit the hay early. It wasn't a lie. Okay, she said. I'll call you. And, Trent, I really am sorry about the things I said the last time we talked. It's all right. I guess we just had our first fight. That wasn't a fight, Trenton, Zoe giggled. When we've had our first fight, you'll know. It took Trent just as long to restore order to the main floor of the house as it had to unpack the lion's share of their belongings. In his dad's room upstairs, he was surprised to find only a few drawers of clothes and the closet shelf disturbed. His home office, the next door over, was a little worse, but not terrible. The other two upstairs bedrooms were empty. It was dark out by then, and Trent was beginning to feel a bit cagey. On an intellectual level, it should have been a relief that their house had finally been hit. As far as he knew, no building had been broken into more than once, and yet the thought of lying down and closing his eyes with any hope of falling asleep was almost laughable. He needed to take precautions. The basement would be his fortress, Trent decided. Not only had it not been violated and thus seemed safer, there were more doors. To access it, one had to first get into the garage, either from the house or the outside. Trent intended to make that impossible. Feeling a bit like a cartoon coyote, he ripped off a dozen four-foot-long two-by-fours and screwed them into the door frames. Yeah, Chet Bushman would freak if he saw the damage to the house's precious original woodwork, but at the moment, who really cared? The old electric garage door was easier to close off. A single pull on the orange string hanging from the ceiling deactivated the motor, a hard twist of the old half-rusted handle on the door itself, and the garage was secured. Once in the basement itself, Trent threw the deadbolt and pushed a huge rolling tool chest in front of the door. He was in for the night, and anyone else who wanted to join him down here would be out of luck. He then shut and locked his bedroom door. It was not even eight, but Trenton's eyes were getting heavy. A couple episodes of Stranger Things, and he'd be out. Officer Cash pulled his cruiser up next to his old truck in the parking lot. Terrell was sitting at the wheel, staring blankly at the hospital in half a trance. Cash squawked the siren to get his attention and rolled the window down. The cool night air felt great. Hey, Ben, anything to report? Nothing. He's still in there. Well, did you at least pop in to see how he's doing? Nope, Terrell said. Don't care. You're a real sweetheart, you know that? Cash got out of the car, and Terrell followed suit. You can shut the door, Cash said. I'm going to give my best to the chief. He disappeared into the hospital. Officer Terrell stretched, bringing a series of cracks from his spine. The last thing he wanted to do was get in the squad car and drive an hour plus back to Clinch Rock. Oh well, this was the job. You still here? Terrell looked up to see an old man in a flannel shirt, carrying a Bible under his arm. Our police chief is admitted here, Terrell said. Just checking in. Maybe throw up a prayer for him if you would, preacher. It's a sin, the old man said. Lying. Excuse me? You were sitting in this truck all day. Saw you a few times. Funny thing, I heard the chief say the guy who knocked him out was driving an old red truck. 
Obviously not this one, though, Terrell said. He sees me drive this truck into work every morning. Why don't you leave the police work to us, old-timer? The old man nodded easily and walked off toward a battered old Buick. Terrell pulled out his phone and took down the license plate. Trent had been in the deepest of sleeps when something dragged him back into the world of the waking. The glowing red numbers of the alarm clock came harshly into focus, 2.21 a.m. He sat up slowly, feeling a tilting inside that he couldn't quite explain. Something was off here. He could hear movement, like rats crawling through the walls. Reaching down between the bed and the wall, he grabbed the aluminum bat he'd stashed there. Holding the bat at the ready, he got up and moved into the middle of the dark room. Only it wasn't totally dark. A faint glow spilled up from beneath the board, blocking off the secret room, moving back and forth like the sliver of light bleeding out from a Xerox machine. His first instinct was to get out of there as quickly as possible, but that was easier said than done. By barring everyone else out, he'd effectively locked himself in. Even opening the garage door would take an extra minute. The thought made him angry more than anything else. How had this person gained access to the basement? The windows were blocked in with metal mesh, a fire marshal's nightmare, but good for security. Trent made a rash decision. He would bring all this shady nonsense out of the shadows and expose the people involved to the harsh and unforgiving light, or at least however many were now in his bedroom. The angry ferret clawed and snarled in his belly, but Trent didn't care. The man who'd knocked his father unconscious might be behind that board. Trent would return the favor, if given half a chance. He flipped on the overhead light. Come out, he growled, his best impression of menacing. Nice and slow. The movement in the hidden room stopped. I've got a gun, he bluffed, so don't try anything. Still no movement. Peering in through the slim opening, Trent found the hidden room still aglow in warm light. His heart went double speed at the sight of a man dressed head to toe in black, face obscured with a mask. But this was not one of the four broad-shouldered hulks from the home store. This intruder was slight, wiry, and fast. With a sudden lurch, the black-clad figure slammed into the pine board, bringing the sharp corner into the bridge of Trent's nose and sending him stumbling back. The man came rushing out from the secret room, colliding with Trent's dazed form, knocking him to the ground. From his vantage point on the concrete floor, Trenton saw the intruder upside down, heading for the door. No way. He wound up and threw the bat with all his might at the man's ankles, hoping to trip him up. He went wide, though, hitting the base of a six-foot tower of moving boxes. They toppled onto the intruder, knocking him momentarily to his knees. Trent scrambled past him, grabbing the bat on the way, and planted himself between his bedroom door and the black-clad figure. You're going nowhere, he said, squaring off in a batter's stance. The intruder stood up straight and wavered for a moment, seemingly deciding between attacking and relenting, before pulling the mask off. Shiny brown hair came cascading down. It was Zoe. Now we've had our first fight, she said. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. 
Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut 